Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Weekday Wednesday, Tucson, Arizona's number one online radio podcast about all things medical cannabis. Your host, Bellstar. And the Cannabis Kid. Our show features news, interviews, and all the latest information about anything and everything medical cannabis related in Tucson, Arizona, and the world at large. We'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call live at 646-915-8421. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on all social media, or email thctucson at gmail.com. We'd like to thank Tumbleweed's Health Center and Studio C, along with our many sponsors for hosting our show every week. With the lowest price certifications in town, you'll find hemp products, accessories, and all things related to medical cannabis education. Visit Tumbleweed's Health Center at 4826 East Broadway Boulevard or online at com. And remember, be smart, be safe, and educate. To Weed Day Wednesday, everybody. June 24th, 2020. What the hell's going on in the world? Trade <laughs> card. Uh, and it's a sad day today, I'm sorry to say. Silver's sister lost her dad today. Mr. Zygmunt. Mr. Richard. Um, so we are sending a ton of prayers out to you and your family. And we love you, Mr. Richard. We say Wednesday, anything can happen. You're here, you're mine for the whole hour. We're going to laugh, we're going to cry, we're going to become a part of it. (laughs) What movie? You can figure that out. Call me back. 646-915-8421 if you want to come on the show. Um, And today... We're going to have a Doug Fine Day. Yeah. We're going to have a Doug Fine Day. We're going to listen to Doug today. Um, exciting things. We love his book. And so we're just going to listen to Doug's book for the next hour. But we're going to tell you, we're going to say thank you to Tumbleweed Health Center at 4826 East Broadway Boulevard. Come on down and get certified. It's not that hard. We do apologize. What is hard is the state of Arizona's medical marijuana system. Yeah, it sucks. We're just going to say it. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sound effects are like, oh, you're getting nasty over there. Yeah, because you guys suck. Seriously, you really, really suck. <laughs> we, we launch a program that doesn't work, and then all our customers are mad at us. It's not our fault, literally. We are doing everything we can to process your applications as fast as we can. Everybody's short-staffed. We're short-staffed. The state's short-staffed. So you guys need to just relax. And the beauty of it all, you can process your own application and get it done in an hour. And you don't have to wait for us to do it. You save $25, and then you can give it to the state of Arizona and deal with them. So that's all I have to say about that. Um, If you want to get certified, come on down. And uh, if you have one of these ailments, uh, PTSD, cancer, glaucoma, AIDS, chronic pain, which covers everything, arthritis, um, you know, RA, osteoarthritis, DDD, migraines, fibromyalgia, um, pain from, I mean, you name it, chronic pain covers a whole host of things. So if you don't hear your ailment on this list, don't worry, it's probably covered severe nausea. Uh, seizures, including epilepsy, HIV, a, uh, hep C, ALS, Crohn's, agitation of Alzheimer's, which can be dementia and all the Alzheimer's disease in between, cachexia or wasting syndrome, severe and persistent muscle spasms, including multiple sclerosis. This can include Parkinson's, uh, leg cramps, all sorts of things um, you can get certified for. And the other thing you can get certified for um, are just the symptoms. So if you're, if you are on a medication 
for something that's not on this list, but it's causing you anything on this list, you can get certified. Come on down. If you suffer from one of these medical conditions and have been diagnosed by an Arizona licensed physician, medical cannabis may help relieve your symptoms. Tumbleweeds Health Center is Arizona's premier cannabis certification health and education center. Our primary focus is to help the patients of Arizona obtain their medical marijuana card and educate everyone about medical cannabis. With current medical records, approval is a simple process. Contact Tumbleweeds Health Center to see if you qualify for your Arizona medical marijuana card. Give us a call, 520-838-4430. Uh, again, we're at 4826 East Broadway Boulevard. We're on the uh, southeast side of Broadway and Swan. So come on down. So let's see what we got here for you folks. Um, oh, here we go. Here's our Doug Fine book. So we're going to continue with Doug Fine, uh, American Hemp Farmer. Adventures and Misadventures in the Cannabis Trade. All right, so let's see if we can just... Five pounds and a fat school teacher who's not really into kids. Okay. Work gloves are a telling piece of equipment in the new regenerative economy. Love work gloves. Folks who always have a pair handy tend to be my kind of people. Always. That includes potential investors. I make excuses for buying them. (laughs) Fat Pig Society hemp deal and Bill noticed. (laughs) What are we looking for specifically, I asked him, three hours into that October harvest day? Temperature had jumped nearly 40 degrees, and we were sweating, having clipped maybe 75 pounds of densely flowering hemp branches each, hanging them on the fence line. That fall Rocky Mountain sun has a way of singeing the epidermis, which is fooled by the overnight chill into thinking it's already winter. Bill had been squatting and staring over the field for four long minutes once I started keeping track. I tried to follow his gaze, but what he was doing was more nuanced than a shepherd watching a flock. He was cataloging marginally visible details the way a cat would think we don't. My friend came deaf to any human voice, flies buzzing his ears, and his ringing cell phone. Just kept looking. I remember doing a few awkward yoga poses, waiting until he came out of his reverie. Here is water first, he said finally taking hold of my arm and guiding us along a late planted row that was thus a little earlier in its development than the areas we've been harvesting. Touch the soil to your second number. Watch the leaves. We continued doing this for 45 minutes, covering an acre. Then, my own water bottle empty and this fellow 20 years my senior never having taken a sip, Bill pointed to a dry drip line. Look at this, he said, stooping. Clogged at the main line. If we weren't here on a day this hot, we'd lose 150 pounds of flour. Lucky today is a watering day for this row, or I might have missed it. Mm -hmm. The hemp row in question sported leaves that were ever so subtly beginning to droop. The soil itself still felt slightly moist when you got an inch and a half down, though that would have changed quickly if the weather held. This is not something you would have noticed if you checked your crop by remote cameras, relied on a quick glance, or hired a neighbor to pop by. This required touch. This required love. But we were in time. We devoted a half hour to shutting off hoses, fixing a leaf build bound at the spigot, while that time was spent finding the adjustable wrench and replacing the section of clogged drip mainline. It felt good getting wet. So good that by sundown, I had the sacks out again, serenading the crop, Pink Panther theme. I couldn't be sure not having interviewed either of them on this specific point. But I got the impression that the plants at sunset were more receptive to my jam than Bill had been at dawn. While the city block long, recently dry row of fragrant, bushy CBD plants had visibly perked up, that might have had something to do with the drink they were enjoying in efficient little plinks from the drip line. Mm. I was tired as I hung, real tired, not first world tired. Ten acres is a lot to walk in one day. One acre is a lot when you're paying close attention to soil and leaves. Farming keeps you in shape if you do it right. (laughs) Three days later, Bill, Eugenia, and another original FPS member, John Long, took me to a nearby commercial kitchen to teach me how to process hemp flour via decarboxylation. Decarboxylation is the most ancient way of processing cannabis hemp. In essence, (laughs) activating a plant's cannabinoids through heating. Technically, as the name implies, you're removing a carbon atom. It's what happens mm. when you light a split or make a CBD cookie. 
Like many enterprises, the FPS folks have since moved on to another processing mode, cold ethanol, due to volume demands, while I've stuck with decarving so far. <laughs> it was an invaluable day in the evolution of what became my own product. I hope the kindness embedded in the FPS members' willingness to share their expertise comes back many times over. But I mention it here because apron-clad in that kitchen, I immediately saw the payoff of Bill's insistence on being on the farm. Each time we heated, stirred, and jarred the FPS flowers for the co-op's coconut oil-infused product called Free Hemp, I was acutely aware that I had handled these plants, even if only for a short time. I had touched, smelled, and sniffed them while giggling with friends. Seldom used muscles were sore from a sort of squat thrust routine executed in 12-hour shifts for days. Being on the farm allowed me to process the harvest with more awareness and care. I have little doubt it resulted in a better product. And I felt better too. As would soon become routine in my life, I emerged from these harvest days muddy and exhausted but perceptibly even more at peace with the general rightness of creation than I had entered them. Without thinking about it, I spent a few days meditating, clearing my thoughts, breathing. I've never heard of anyone regretting a field day. <laughs> when you find yourself out of range on a farm, away goes that bank account discrepancy you've meant to check. Every problem seems not just solvable, but minor. You're growing <laughs> food. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to be fine. So mm -hmm. don't even mm -hmm. think about pawning that little bit of the process off, growing the actual hemp, imagining you have more important work to do on the computer or at the trade show booth. The farmer isn't your worker. The farmer is you, or at least you plus your partners. Learn to be suspicious of clean fingernails. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is farm out the farm work. Learn to be suspicious I maneuvered the camper out of Fort Collins that October evening, forever aware that engaging at the farm is a vital part of the process for anyone in a hemp enterprise. It's why, seven months later, my youngest son celebrated his sixth birthday planting hemp with the rest of our family in Vermont. Nice. Chapter 3, Owning Your Seed, Vermont. 2018. Seeds have the power to counter economic monopoly and to check the advance of conformity on all its many fronts. Michael Pollan, Second Nature. Eager as I am to get us acquiring strong seed genetics and then into the field to plant them, I figure we're wise to understand what's going on behind the genetics policy before we're armed with the knowledge about how to choose our seed. The first thing to remember is that hemp plants want a little THC. <laughs> when you try to take it out, it generally comes back or it weakens the plant. Stripping THC in the name of some bygone drug war would be like stripping your blood hemoglobin because a vampire might get drunk on it. <laughs> the reason we define hemp as we do at the moment 0.3% THC or less by dry weight is because of a 1976 paper by the Canadian researchers Ernest Small and Arthur Cronquist. Here's the operative phrasing that guides our industry to this day, but not for long. We arbitrarily adopt a concentration of 0.3% Delta 9 THC in young, vigorous leaves of relatively mature plants as a guide to discriminating two classes of plant. Adopting the 0.3% part of this impactful sentence, as much of the world has, created a newly separated branch of the cannabis plant called hemp. It marked the first time that hemp was specifically defined as something separate from psychoactive cannabis. Back in the Hemp for Victory days, when the USDA begged farmers to grow hemp for the World War II effort, some of which ended up as the parachute cordage that famously saved future President George H.W. Bush's life, THC wasn't even known. It was isolated in 1964. For all of human history through about 1976, cannabis has always been one plant. 
this is a visceral issue for me because for a minute I was worried that our 2018 Vermont crop had tested hot. Hot refers to a crop that has arguably more THC than current temp definitions allow. I opened the email from our testing lab that fall and felt that realization you get when you catch the flu that's going around. Mm. Oh, you're saying this applies to me too? Suddenly, my team and I were not invincible. Suddenly, we were deeply empathetic toward a large number of our colleagues because suddenly, we thought, we were among them. And that team included the state temp program coordinator for Vermont's Agency of Agriculture, Food, and Markets, Terry Jaguer, along with his daughter, Erin, and son-in-law, Colin, who produced a line of hemp products called Vermont Pharmacy. We had become cultivation partners back in the spring of that year. When he heard that I was a free agent in the Green Mountain State with the dissolution of my original Vermont partnership, Terry set up a meeting at a Killington pub and pitched, we've got organic ready family land, You've got a promising cultivar. Just say it. <laughs> now, back in New Mexico, after eight months of hard work together, culminating in a successful Vermont harvest, I had just come inside the ranch house from dashing around the funky butte arroyos. Julie Andrews had gotten into the grapes then hopped the fence. That's when I saw the message that contained our Vermont peak flower results. At first, I thought the report contained a decimal point typo. I texted my partners, they must have meant... 0.27%, not 2.7%, right? The same seed that same season tested under 0.3% in Oregon. And in previous years, it didn't test hot in official tests in any of the four states where I had grown or provided it. But it turned out I wasn't reading the results wrong. I had conducted the wrong kind of test. These were peak flower results. This is important. Peak flower samples are those clipped from the top three inches of the highest or cola bud on cannabis plants, where the plant is bursting with cannabinoid-soaked trichomes. In Vermont, draft rules propose that farmers be allowed to sample from the more farmer-friendly leaf part of the plant. Leaf testing is friendlier because the leaf contains cannabinoids, but in lower levels than the flower does, so a leaf-tested crop is less likely to go hot. Regardless, for a split second, I felt like Calvin bringing home a report card. He's not eager for his parents to sign. Dang, this was the first crop I had cultivated that had received USDA organic certification. Our group celebrated with freshly harvested hemp waffles drenched in the home-tapped maple syrup. <laughs> we saw it as a huge step, both practically, the three-acre harvest became at least 15% more valuable, and philosophically. Once chosen crop going from a Schedule One federal narcotics felony to USDA organic in five short years. Not too shabby. Now, suddenly, I was concerned that I might not be able to make my share of the harvest into hemp and hemp. Concerned that one's potentially lucrative crop might have to be composted makes life perhaps a bit too exciting. I recall a few anxiety dreams when that flower result first came back. Fortunately for all Vermont farmers, for more than a year, Kerry Shigera had been researching hemp cannabinoid testing. Vermont didn't yet have an official protocol, but its policymakers were working to develop one in anticipation of pending full legalization of hemp. Since long before we teamed up, Kerry had been developing an industry-supporting THC testing protocol whose early proposed versions included, among other testing options, sampling of young, vigorous leaves of relatively mature plants. Interestingly, this friendly leaf testing idea came from the same 1976 paper in which Small and Cronquist, arbitrarily their word, picked 0.3% THC as the definition of this new hemp branch of the cannabis family tree. I've always imagined Small and Cronquist collaborating in their Ontario labs Reasoning that if you're going to one day cause thousands of farmers sleepless nights worrying needlessly about THC that doesn't show up in their final product, you might as well choose a testing mode that doesn't stack the deck. But when I emailed him in 2019 to ask about his motivation, Dr. Small, who is now a member of the Order of Canada, the nation's second highest honor, 
said that the 0.3% THC level was based on previous analyses of THC content in thousands of plants with testing of upper, younger leaves. In an earlier interview, he further clarified it was calculated to be the concentration that naturally best separated the two groups. By two groups, small meant hemp and psychoactive cannabis. Regardless of the research methodology, the fact is the 1976 paper that landed at 0.3% also suggested leaf testing. By developing a plan that would include this unimpeachable source and implementing it as an a priori policy for the 2018 season in advance of final regulation, Carey saved dozens of Vermonters' hemp seasons four decades after the paper's publication. That included ours, but he had no reason to think it would. Leaf testing is just a fair way to test for THC. In 2019, Carey also proposed an additional testing method option based on a genetic sample taken right at germination that can determine whether or not the plant is hemp. Many farmers are fans of this mode because they'll know early in the season that their crop has passed its THC test. I prefer leaf testing later in the season, in part because I'm not sure how regenerative such genetic testing modes are, and in part because I believe it's easier for a borderline plant to pass a leaf test. Here's proof of how good policy really works. Remember that 2.7% flower THC result? Our third-party leaf test on the same crop came back at 0.3%, clean as a Bernie Sanders conscience. This is what the crop deserved. Even a flower test of 4 or 5% is not going to prove a commercially marketable option for a psychoactive black market eater. Dispensary ganja flower starts around 12 or 15% and goes to 30% or above. Our crop was obviously hemp, and a fair test confirmed it. In 2017, 30% of Colorado and Kentucky hemp farmers tested hot. That's because of biology. Cannabis produces cannabinoids for predator defense, pleasing humans, and the other reasons we've discussed. From a policy perspective, when one-third of farmers aren't allowed to harvest their crop, it's a neon red flag that THC testing protocol needs an upgrade. The best upgrade would be not to test farmers' crops at all. As of 2019, depending on a crop's level of hotness and a given state's policy, it can be and often is destroyed because of policy minutiae best described not just as pointless but as insane. While some states allow mildly hot crops up to 1% THC to be retested, used for compost, seed, and fiber, or even cannabinoid extraction via cannabis dispensaries, other states' policies still mandate crop destruction and even threaten prosecution. Making THC levels irrelevant to farmers across the land is one of the two baseline policy goals that will ensure that this time, as a new major agriculture-based industry emerges, the farmers are the folks who primarily benefit. The other policy goal is called the genetic level playing field, meaning the right of farmers to own, develop, and replant their seeds and clones. This happens to be both a human right and a key economic pillar. No corporation will ever restrict my family's ability to plant food. From a business standpoint, it's also the key to a diverse and robust hemp industry controlled by independent farmers. At this moment in cannabis-human relations, if you want to grow hemp in the United States, your first move, once you've started cultivating mycelia and collecting livestock dung, is to acquire a cultivation permit in your state. These cost anywhere from $25 to $1,500 per season. My New Mexico permit sets the farmer back about $800, depending on acreage and the number of cultivars, which is pro-jargon for hemp varieties. One day, hemp won't require any special permitting. If we rally with sufficient ferocity, it'll be one day soon. But even with the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill, federal law mandates that each state submit its hemp program plans to the USDA for approval. Then each farmer, and in some cases also each processor and seed provider, must have a permit. So call it legalization if you like, but these are not the same rules that farmers face for growing, say, tomatoes. We'll get there. It's up to each state to establish its regulatory framework. 
This is the rulemaking process that follows the passage of a state's hemp law, a genetic level playing field, and THC irrelevance are the two essential components that set up independent hemp farmer entrepreneurs for success with a supportive regulatory climate. Here's why. As many hemp program administrators already recognize, farmers must have access to all hemp genetics for at least five years before any certification process is established. This means that hemp seed or clones, tissue culture, pollen, However, plant genetics can be transferred from any state that meets federal hemp definitions, may be transported and cultivated without the government deciding for farmers which varieties are kosher. Having the option to own and develop these genetics is a non-negotiable baseline for a farmer-based hemp economy. Farmers must control their genetics because some hemp seed providers want to be the hemp Monsanto or Syngenta. Surprise, surprise. They'd like to sell you their seed every year, meaning you can't replant it. These would-be monopolists are banking that farmers have been cowed by the past half-century's neo-serfdom nonsense. Nope. As a sole option for farmers to acquire seed stock, that model is a non-starter. Generally speaking, the independent entrepreneur is wise to look instead for open-source seed providers who don't aspire to be genetics moguls. You can tell because they'll offer you some kind of a right of replication form when they provide the seed, Wild Bill said. It's how we do it. That's also how I roll with my genetics. You'll have to pay a price for open source seed, generally more upfront than non-open source genetics, but then you own it. You can replant it, eat it, make it into a nail care product, do what you like with it. The only exception is that you have to pay a royalty if you decide to market genetics deriving from seed provided. Now, I like to think I'm Mr. Reasonable Middle Ground. Who doesn't? So let's say you're a seed developer who argues, I've spent a decade and hundreds of thousands of dollars working on a cultivar that I like because of its purported THC stability, high CBD level, or the protein content in its seed. Why should I let farmers buy it once and then replant it themselves? First off, because that's how agriculture has always worked since the end of feudalism until recently. Out on the prairie, Pa Ingalls was not enslaved to the wheat company from which he bought his seed. Seed saving is part of the traditional farming process. But sure, if you want to sell your genetics cheaper than an open source provider does, with the stipulation that farmers must buy it again next year, fine. As long as there are plenty of alternative options from which a farmer can choose. A level playing field, in other words. There are scores of terrific open-source domestic seed varieties available to farmers, whether you're growing for seed, fiber, cannabinoids, or soil bloom. Once the industry has matured a bit, these can all compete for seed certification in a state or region. Say a farmer is in it for the long haul and doesn't want to buy seed every year. Old-style seed developers would like to maintain the 20th century process for becoming a provider of a non-open-source variety. Under this model, the farmer starts with proprietary breeder seed and works for several years through the established stages, foundational, registered, and certified seed, until he is essentially the representative of a particular seed company in a region. That's also fine. That's your choice. As a farmer, while the buy seed every year model is not exactly my definition of food security, it's one option that might work for some enterprises. Let's say your product is delicious hemp hearts, de seed. Everyone in my family eats this Omega Balance superfood in our morning goat yogurt. It could conceivably be cheaper for an entrepreneur to buy and grow the same seed every year from the same provider. And, arguably, it could result in more year-to-year consistency than having to build your own stable seed stock, as long as your provider stays in business and maintains supply, quality, and cost. For most independent entrepreneurs, though, owning genetics will be the wiser choice. And the key word is choice. A level playing field policy means both models, open source and non, are allowed, and it's easy to implement. All a state genetics policy has to say is that permit holders' crops must test within federal hemp THC definition. It's really that simple. I recall shivering under my blankets at a high-altitude Colorado campsite in early April of 2018, 
when my frosty one-bar cell phone pinged. It was Carrie Shiger in Vermont. I'm in Montpelier at the Senate chambers right now working on the new hemp bill, his note said. What is the most armor-friendly, federally compliant wording for acquiring seeds or clones? I'll be blazing and smoking it, about to go and get some munchy snacks Passing up on those cracker jacks, Reese's Pizzas are where it's at Gotta get me some soda pop, cotton mouth has been creeping up I can't remember where I put my keys, yeah, that's what's up I'ma take your grandpa's ride, I'ma take your grandpa's ride No, for real, ask your grandpa, can I take a 65? Deville cruising to my local Publix Nothing better than rolling with two super fly chicks They have frozen burritos, I bought frozen burritos I bought some Ben and Jerry's, and then I bought some Cheetos Hello, hello, my main man Obama A couple states have just reformed their laws on marijuana What you gonna do, send the feds there? Hell no, the DEAs would be like, ah, oh, they got volcanoes I'm gonna smoke some weed, only got $20 in my pocket I'm a hunt, looking for a pot shop, this is fucking know about the science of marijuana what you know about people suffering from glaucoma they need it they need it it helps them with their condition if you don't believe me then just ask some eye physicians thank your granddad for voting for that guy richard nixon is the president who made the plant illegal but science is now showing that it's medicine for people and the private sector fighting to keep all of that illegal alcohol and tobacco pharmaceutical prisons i'll take those four major lobby groups and fight those motherfuckers they're making money day and night all those motherfuckers and bribing congress out of sight all those motherfuckers They'd be like, oh, it's immoral and unhealthy I'm like, how many people are you making wealth? Anti-marijuana lobbies are making all kinds of profits And they don't want you to stop it because of all the special interests I call that getting swindled and pimped shit I call that getting tricked by the government That law's hella old so it's time to update it, regulate it, and then get it under state control. Peak game, look into my political telescope. Think it's gonna stay like this forever? Not nah, hella won't. Not hella won't. Hey Obama, stop being a hypocrite. You used to smoke weed, fool. I'm gonna smoke some weed. Only got $20 in my pocket. I'm a one looking for a five shop. some of those and if you want to report in just give us a call 646-915-8421 and we'd love to hear from you so call on in right now you can chat in if you want if you go to our website it's tumbleweedhealthcenter.com and check out the radio section you can actually listen to the show live you can click a link there and um, get to the actual blog talk show and then you can chat with us that way um, but in the meantime, give it up. We're going to be listening to Doug Fine.
and millions of pounds of carbon sequestration. In a very uncharacteristic move for me, I kept it short and sweet. In about 20 numb-fingered seconds, I typed, registrants may purchase or import hemp genetics from any state that complies with the federal requirements for the cultivation of industrial hemp. I am proud to say that this is how Vermont law reads today. It's easy to demonstrate why a level playing field is so vital. The states that implement strong genetics policies and the few remaining that don't are as different as night and day. The proof is in the numbers. In Oregon, for example, which has a hands-off genetics policy, 7,808 acres were cultivated in 2018, third most in the nation. Mm. More than 1,300 farmers are projected to plant 46,219 acres in the Beaver State in 2019, a six-fold increase. Across the Columbia River in Washington, by contrast, farmers suffered from a legacy hemp law that mandated offshore importation of seeds that in most cases they couldn't replant or even grow for flower applications. Have a guess on 2018 acreage? 142. And 105 of those were the Colville Tribes Project. Washington's policy and its number of farmers improved markedly for the 2019 season. Here in New Mexico, our policymakers saw what the successful hemp states were doing and listened to what we initial land of enchantment farmers wanted especially with genetics. As a result, we have a terrific program that has a per capita record setting 353 applicants cultivating more than 2,000 acres in its first season. Quiet, humble New Mexico (laughs) might even find herself among the national hemp leaders before too long. Plus, 2,000 acres means a lot of carbon sequestration. Right now, Vermont's hemp law and regulations our best in nation. In addition to the genetic level playing field mandated in the state's hemp law, Vermont is leading the way toward making our second vital policy, THC irrelevance until retail level, standard operating procedure. Vermont's regulators want hemp to succeed, according to 48-year-old Chiguerre, because our dairy industry has cratered and farmers need alternatives. As a result, Vermont has a hemp program designed for independent farmers to thrive. Carrie's motivation to cultivate hemp while a state employee was almost identical to mine to cultivate hemp while a journalist. He had to plant. In my case, the wildfire that nearly made my family climate refugees and cost us much of our goat herd was the catalyst. Carrie came to it from a higher altitude. The rebirth of the hemp industry is too important a phenomenon in human history to ignore, he said, when he suggested we team up. His boss, Anson Tebbets, Vermont's Secretary of Agriculture, Food, and Markets, agrees. Six months after Carrie and I decided to cultivate together, Secretary Tebbets showed up in loafers and Oxford shirt to help us plant. Dude got dirty. There's an old hair restoral commercial where the hirsute founder assures us, I'm not only the hair club president, but I'm (laughs) also a client. That's how Carrie, who also heads the state pesticide management division, operates. The curly mane gentle giant gets up early, heads to work in Montpelier, and with almost poetic legislative wording, empowers his state's farmers. Then he comes home, farms a bit himself, and finally enjoys a microbrew beside the pond with his wife, kids, and often me. Then, as all farmers do, he gets up and does it again. The Jaguar clan is also, like perhaps 96% of Vermonters, a family of sugar makers. Culturally, Vermonters make maple syrup like San Franciscans design websites. My favorite is the Jaguar family's grade A very dark syrup the porter of the maple world. The point is, Carrie understands the plight of the small farmer because he is one. We're a state of independent farmers. The mountains don't allow for many huge fields, Shiger said. It makes 
sense for policy to allow them to thrive. Obviously, farmers should choose their genetics. Policy translates into the quality of the hemp in the ground, which is what really matters. The reason for that is best expressed by Michael Pollan in The Botany of Desire. American cannabis farmers are the best gardeners of my generation, which is to say, domestic genetics are often superior to and are certainly competitive with the non-open source varieties currently deriving largely from overseas. Folks who have been growing underground for a half century have, in the realest way, been conducting agronomic efficiency studies. They are hemp's Gregor Mendel's. So if hemp is helping someone you love, hug a former black market cannabis farmer. As with any crop, farmers know what they want to grow and how to grow it. If they want to encourage a new property in a cultivar, say, more CBC in their crop's flower, they'll breathe for it. I'm doing such cannabinoid fine-tuning this year. Limiting this flexibility for any reason, let alone for the benefit of wannabe neo-Monsantos, would be like a regulator telling Steve Jobs in 1981, laptop and watch development is okay, Tablet and cell phones, no. Uh, plus, you can only use chips made of broad that we approve. We, the farmers, will make our own chips. Thank you very much. Another key issue that a simple genetics clause like Vermont's resolves is the certification red herring. The way a state seed certification protocol generally works, seed specialists in the agriculture department, usually in sync, with a coalition of certifiers known as AOSCA, Association of Official Seed Certifying Agencies, decide what varieties of a crop are on the approved list for commercial production. This in general is a good process. We are in such an early developmental phase of our industry though, that very few domestically certified seeds even yet exist. But this isn't a problem. Again, channeling Michael Pollan's assertion, our open source domestic cultivars will populate a strong portion of the future certified seed family across the land. That's precisely because homespun genetics are often outperforming European and Canadian certified imports in a number of areas, including both seed production and flower composition. I've seen it in the ground repeatedly. Don't take my word for it. Just witness the recent effort of Canadian seed companies to purchase U.S.-developed cannabinoid genetics, including those of my Oregon partners, to see this reality in play. In other words, you, the new independent hemp farmer, benefit from the genetic level playing field because you have the opportunity to demonstrate that you are competitive with any other farmers. As American hemp farmers did in the 18th and 19th centuries, you and I will build our seed stock. Since any genetic quality claims are anecdotal in this early phase of the industry, I'll add that I think it's safe to say by any agronomic standard, the more genetics farmers have at their easy disposal, the better. Edison, remember, by 6,000 potential light bulb filaments landing on tungsten as the solution. Ahead of USDA policy announcements, a few states already got rolling on hemp genetic certification, and more may be doing so by the time you're reading this book. Colorado, for one, has been doing it in an appropriate way. If you meet certain benchmarks for germination and THC levels in each of the state's bioregions, you're in. And so far, one U.S. cultivar is qualified, which is far better than none. As several hemp program coordinators have pointed out to me, establishing seed certification protocol has been a requisite step for many commercial crops. Because our industry is in its infancy, we, the farmers, are the ones who should be deciding exactly what we want to grow and how we want to develop our genetics. And most of all, we demand to own our seed. We have consulted with Wendell Berry. We've been tipped off about how the game has been rigged for half a century. As the young industry matures, the rules must be different for hemp genetics. 
Given that hemp spent 77 years in the penalty box, we all have to start somewhere when it comes to developing the ideal genetics for our microclimates and end products. If you're like my hemp professor, Edgar Winters, this is a lifelong project. I rarely visit Oregon without either Edgar or Margaret handing me a tiny watercolor brush and making me paint grains of pollen on a promising flower in the greenhouse. <laughs> Temp I'm learning with every crop is amazingly adaptive. The second crop in a region is commonly more robust than the first, often regardless of a cultivar's origin, and some cultivars are more adaptive than others. If a state ag program does decide it wants, after five or better yet, 10 years, to institute a seed certification program, the level playing field launch period will have served its purpose. Farmers, both independent entrepreneurs and commercial seed development entities, will have had a window in which to see what grows well in their ecosystem. Not enough time to really develop a breeding program, but enough to pass germination and related tests. What we're not going to allow is what happened to farmers of corn, soy, and wheat, and alfalfa, and on and on. Business as usual, namely trapping farmers in a debt cycle to seed and herbicide companies, is not part of the hemp brand. <clears throat> Lest this pride in domestic cultivars come across as jingoistic, I'd like to add that I absolutely love that farmers all over the world are developing terrific regional cultivars. Be that it runs. We want Champagne and Chardonnay, Parmigiano Ruggiano and Roquefort. Mm. And when farmers from Ohio to India build their seed, I and many others are hopeful, they will begin to stem the farmers' suicide crisis. Mm. The excellent program admins in states like New Mexico and Vermont realize that hemp will not be ready for certification until farmers have had years to work with as wide a variety of genetic options as possible to determine what works best in each region. Mm -hmm. Even Colorado waited five years from the implementation of its first in the nation hemp program before launching its certification protocol. Is there a downside to allowing the genetic level playing field? I offer two caveats. The first is to be careful from whom you get your genetics. Many farmers got junk genetics this first year, Brad Lewis of the New Mexico Department of Agriculture told me. That bummed me out to hear because I and others had good options. I got a lot of last-minute panicky calls from farmers, but oh well, there's always next year. The second is that some states allow you to choose your genetics, but you're on the hook in a potentially menacing way if they test super hot. Still, choosing your own is totally worth it, mm -hmm. especially compared with the restricted genetics nightmare my colleagues at the Colville Travel Project have <clears> been through. As one of the few brave entities willing to forge ahead under Washington's abysmal initial state hemp program, the project suffered a double insult. The European seed the tribe planted in 2000 and 2018 was nothing like the quality of the domestic cultivars I planted in my personal projects, and the tribe couldn't replant the imported genetics even if it had wanted to. Still, project coordinator Richter was shrewd. She figured the tribe would be ahead of the learning curve when a real hemp program was instituted. Mm. And that's how it's playing out. Under the new federal hemp law, tribes are treated like states. Recently, Richter sent me a draft travel program to read. I replied with a set of comments that basically came down to be like Vermont. Vermont's slam dunk law and promising pending rules help explain why it has the highest hemp acreage per overall farm acreage in the nation, 1,820 acres in 2018, mm. with tellingly for our indie boosting purposes, all but two applicants cultivating 10 acres or less. It also explains why I've cultivated there and in Oregon for three years until my own state came online. These have been the most friendly hemp business climate. As a starting point for ensuring a level playing field in your backyard, make sure your state's hemp program doesn't mention genetics at all, other than to say that they must meet federal hemp definitions. Mm -hmm. 
If you see the words approved cultivars in your state's law or regulations, it's code for indenturing the independent farmer to seed companies. Hmm. Don't rest until you have this kind of wording struck. From there, our mission is to restore the very definition of hemp to its historical one, where THC is a non-issue to the farmer. Mm-hmm. That's the day when cultivating hemp is treated no differently from cultivating tomatoes. THC irrelevance until the retail level. This, our second vital policy endgame, means that permit holders in any state can grow any variety of cannabis they like, regardless of potential THC. The burden of worrying about minute variations in a commercial plant's chemical composition will be removed from the farmer. THC will matter only if a final product exceeds locally determined levels for adult use regulation, the way alcohol and tobacco are regulated. Otherwise, it's nobody's business what variety you grow any more than your variety of tomato. And yes, this means that at the federal level, the definition of hemp, as opposed to cannabis, will go away. All cannabis will be, as it properly has been for most of history, regarded as one plant. When I first discussed federal THC irrelevance with national cannabis and hemp lobbyists five years ago, they thought I was kidding. Reefer madness was still too recent. Commercial hemp wasn't yet legal. Now they're telling me it might happen within 10 years. I think it'll be sooner. In 2016, when I walked into the office of Thomas Massey, congressman from Kentucky, a conservative Republican hemp supporter who represents the dry on Sunday Christian County, the first question (laughs) he asked me was, do we need to raise the THC definition of hemp to 1%? That's a good start, I replied. Then 3%. Then no federal THC definitions at all. Switzerland and Tasmania already have 1% definitions. Regardless of the timeline, the law of the land must have the feds out of the THC regulation game entirely. States can set their own THC levels, but only for retail level products. The farmer will be free to grow whatever she likes without interference. While we work to implement this policy everywhere, Farmers' hemp crops will still have to be tested for THC, so an immediate stopgap measure is to ensure that THC testing is conducted from samples taken from the leaf of the plant rather than from the flower. As we discussed, a leaf-tested crop is less likely to go hot. This will be combined with farmer-friendly THC calculation formulas. These measures maximize farmer-entrepreneur opportunities under current law. The reason we must stop punishing farmers for these micro fluctuations in THC levels is this. A hemp plant harvested in the field very rarely goes directly to a customer. The fun little secret in the early hemp industry is that processors don't need to worry about THC. Only farmers do. Unless you're processing your hemp flour by a decarboxylation, you are almost always going way over 0.3% THC at some point in the course of your processing journey. For instance, if you process your hemp flour in pursuit of a CBD product in a cold ethanol extractor, it initially comes out as a concentrate, what hemp professionals call crude. This crude might contain, say, 80% CBD and 7% THC. Although still much milder than dispensary cannabis, that's 23 times higher than current hemp THC limits. Standard procedure at this point is to dilute the brown pasty mixture with coconut oil, for example, until it is back below 0.3% THC in the final product, or to run it through further equipment that removes the THC. No one worries about this, not entrepreneurs, not regulators, not buyers at chain stores, and they shouldn't because the final product in the store meets federal hemp definitions. So why during cultivation do we obsess over small THC variations in flowers? Since a field test usually has no connection to the final product, it's totally unnecessary. It's like testing beer when the final product is orange juice. 
and it has devastated some of my friends' enterprises. To give one example, the family-owned Salt Creek Hemp operation on Colorado's western slope could have benefited from a sensible testing policy like Vermont's proposed regulations. A fairer testing protocol would have saved our 2017 crop, Salt Creek's Aaron Rydell told me recently when we were trying to rustle some of his cows near Grand Mesa National Forest. I got my first wrinkles dealing with destroying that 0.34% crop we had doted on for eight months. And the test results were within the margin of error for the machinery that the state used. These Salt Creek peeps are some of the most down-to-earth, shirt-off-their-back, willingly tax-paying operators you could ever hope to meet. They gladly make every effort to follow all of Colorado's regulations. For instance, the genetics they acquired that year had a certificate of analysis, COA, proving that they had passed the previous season's THC test. Their crop tested hop partly because a flower testing regimen punishes farmers for being too good at their job. A hot test really means a healthy crop. THC, remember, is something the plant wants. So, and this is the really horrible part, a common method for avoiding hot crops is to tweak nutrients like nitrogen and when necessary, harvest early. In other words, be a worse farmer to meet admittedly arbitrary rules. This is not a viable long-term industry game plan, but today you actually have farmers trying to impede their crop's robustness. I know my own seed best, so I'll speak to the samurai cultivar I've been developing. All the copious seed and fiber it produces contain negligible THC, regardless of what the flower test shows. Just to be sure, Terry Jaguera and I tested the seed from our 2018 Vermont harvest. No detectable THC. In addition to testing protocols promoting bad farming, they aren't even standardized. The equipment might be calibrated differently from one state to another or even in different parts of the same state. Plus, as Ernest Small himself has pointed out, THC levels in a plant can vary significantly between morning and evening. All of this adds up to a policy that needs to change post-haste. Carrie is on it. He's a soft-spoken visionary. Sometimes when he runs a policy idea by me, it takes weeks for its shrewd impact to sink in. But the results to date have always been the same. His policy decisions have a way of palpably lowering my blood pressure. I mean this quite literally. If you'd strapped me to an EKG for the entire 2018 hemp season, you'd be able to chart each solid policy decision on the readout. After proposing leaf testing and early plant genetic sampling as options in Vermont's draft regulations, Kerry went one better. He proposed that Vermont not require THC testing for dioecious cultivars at all. Only Sensomia crops would be tested. If you're marketing, say, hemp hearts, hemp plastic, or phytoremediative services, why should your flowers' THC matter? It shouldn't. These are seed and fiber applications. If you do grow Sensomia style or flower applications in Vermont, under the draft regulations, once a test is passed, Vermont asks no more THC questions until the retail level. The future is here in New England. THC is irrelevant, and that is how to launch a hemp program. And that is where we're going to end. Wednesday, Wednesday, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in and being on the show today with us. Uh, We always welcome you here. And we love Doug, and we love his book. It's so awesome to be able to listen to this. Because I myself have a little hard time reading, so, yeah. So I like listening to books. And, and I was just thinking, you know, when you look at the cover, it says read by the author when you download his audio book. Um, it's really cool when the author reads it because you get to hear their passion in what they're reading about. If someone else had read this, it would probably be very different. So thank you, Doug Fine. We love you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Wednesday, Wednesday. As always. Be smart, be safe, and educate. And Mr. Richard, Mr. Zygmunt, we love you. And um, 
That's it. Have an awesome day, you guys. Be nice out there to each other. And hug when you can. <laughs>